0: back everyone as we continue our study in the book of Exodus or as it's known in Hebrew the book of Shemot which means names because as we learned last week in the first verse of Exodus it says and these are the names of the children of Israel who are coming to Egypt and uh, it starts out with the names of uh, 70 souls who came. But there's really one name that this book is all about, and that's the name Adonai, Yad-Heh-Vav-Heh. And this Torah portion is, uh, to put it bluntly, overwhelming. There is so much here. There are major life themes, universal themes uh, in this, this book, but focused in this portion here. So we're going to do as we did last week and as we're going to continue to do, and that's to bring out some of the seasonings of the Torah. Um, I've talked about a lot of the big things and past teachings. We've looked at the, uh, the ten plagues and how the first nine uh, were targeted against specific Egyptian gods. I'm not going to look at that this week. Uh, we've looked before at the excuses that, um, I'm sorry, the, uh, the compromises that Pharaoh wanted to make with Moses and with God. There are two of them in this week's portion and two in next week's portion. You can go back and listen to past teachings to, to, to study those four compromises because they're the same compromises the enemy wants us to make. Um, but we just want to jump right in here at the beginning and, uh, and look at something that if it didn't surprise you and shock you, then you really weren't reading that closely. Let's take a look. Our portion begins in chapter 6, verse 2. God, and the, when you see the word God, uh, capital G, lowercase is O and D. It's, it's Elohim, which is the most common name for God used in the Hebrew Scriptures. God Elohim spoke to Moses and said to him, "I am Yadhe Vahhe. I am." And we say Adonai. We don't know how to pronounce it, Yadhe Vahhe, and we're not really supposed to anyway. And he says in verse 3, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as El Shaddai. But with my name, Yad-Heh-Vav-Heh, I did not make myself known to them. Moreover, I established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their sojourning that goes on. Now, this is what's so surprising. He says, Elohim spoke further to Moses, said to him, I am, and there you can see Yad-Heh-Vav-Heh spelled out in Hebrew in the red letters. And I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as El Shaddai, but by my name, Yad-Heh-Vav-Heh, I did not make myself known to them. And again, we don't know how to pronounce that name. Some Bibles will say Jehovah, but we know that's dead wrong. Um, Others, (coughs) Others, <coughs> Bibles will put Lord in all capital letters. Uh, <coughs> many Jewish people will say Hashem, which simply means the name. And we tend to say Adonai, which is the Hebrew word for Lord. So when we say Adonai, it's Yad Heh Vav Now here's the problem. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all knew God's name, Yad Heh Vav Heh. So why did he say? I am Adonai. Appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Israel should die, but my name, Yad Hevaveh, I did not make myself known to them. When they knew his name, how can this be? Well, let's go back to last week's portion, into chapter three, and let's understand how this name Yad Vavhe, uh, is revealed to Moses at the burning bush. And then we'll talk more about what God is saying here in chapter 6. So if you go back to chapter 3, beginning in verse 13, it says that Moses said to God, to Elohim, and he's at the burning bush, he says, behold, I am going to the sons of Israel and I will say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, and here we have it in Hebrew, "Eya, asher, eya." Reading from right to left, "Eya, asher, eya." "Eya" means I will be. It's a common verb we find here in Exodus and throughout the, the Torah. It simply means I will be. Asher means that or which. I will be what I will be. Okay? That's what God said Moses should say to the people. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, Eya has sent me to you. God furthermore said to Moses, thus shall you say to the sons of Israel, Yad-Heh-Vav-Heh. The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. So Yadheyvaveh is the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And they knew that name, and they spoke that name. But in chapter six, God says, "I didn't reveal myself to them by that name. What is going on here? This is one of the places where people, critics will say, we'll see how the Bible's filled with contradictions. But that is not the case at all. The case here is that we need to understand what the word shim, name, really means. On the one hand, if you meet a person, you see their face, you see their features, and you remember them. And you ask them, what is your name? And they say, my name is Joe. So you attach the name Joe to that face, to the sound of that voice, and uh, maybe to the facial expressions of Joe. And this is kind of how Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob knew Adonai. But God here in Exodus, in chapter 6, he's saying, I, but now I'm going to reveal what that name really means. I'm going to reveal who I really am in a way that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob didn't. As intimate as the forefathers Relationship with God was God says I'm revealing a whole new aspect of me. So now when you think of the name YHWH, this is what you're going to think about. But as we go on here in chapter three, He says, "This is my name forever. This is my memorial name to all generations." Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, "YHWH, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me." saying, I am indeed concerned about you and what has been done to you in Egypt. So first God says, Eya Asher Eya, I will be as I will be. And then he says, say to them, Eya has sent you. I will be. But then he says, Yudhe Vafe, this is my memorial name forever. And this is the name I'll be known by. Why the change? Because I will be has to do with the future. But Yad He Vav has to do with the past and the present and the future. It transcends time. It's outside of time. Because when you look at the letters of Yad He Vav these letters are what spell the word Haya, was. These letters spell Hove, which means is. And they spell yihi or yiyah which means will be. All three of these verbs are comprised of the letters in the name yad He vav What we learn from this is that God's name is a verb and that it transcends time. He rules the past. He rules the present. He rules the future. So to say, Eya, Asher, Eya, I will be as I will be, doesn't quite capture the essence of who he is because it only deals with the future. yad heh deals with all of time, past, present, and future. And as you've heard me say many times before, Adonai's name, yad heh is a verb. That means since his name is a verb, we don't pronounce it with our lips. We pronounce it with our lives. We pronounce his name when we do the things of God. This is how we are to proclaim His name, not just by saying it aloud all the time. We can get a parrot to do that, but to live out His commandments, to live out His ways, to model our life according to His values, His precepts, His statutes. When we do that, we are proclaiming His name by being what we're supposed to be. He is the be-er, We are the beings, and when we live life in alignment with his life, he lives his life through us, and his name is proclaimed. That is when we truly bear his image. Now, as we go on in this passage, we come to verse 6, and these Four things that God says are really answers to the four questions that Moses had at the end of chapter 5. You can go back and look at those. It's almost like Moses has four accusations against God. And so God comes on the scene and he begins to say, this is what I'm going to do. So we pick it up in chapter 6, verse 6. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am yod I am Avonai. And number one, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And number two, I will deliver you from slavery to them. And number three, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And number four, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am YHWH, Adonai, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. At the Passover Seder, we drink four cups of wine. And these four cups are one of the most ancient parts of the order that has been established for the Seder. Uh, There's a whole section in the Talmud, uh, a tractate called Pesachim, which is about Pesach, about Passover. And much of that tractate discusses these four cups of wine, what they represent. And we drink two cups before the meal. And then we drink two cups after the meal. So these two are drunk before the meal. We have the meal, and then after the meal, cups number three and four. These two cups, the third and fourth cups, are the ones Yeshua refers to at his last Passover Seder. When he says, uh, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you, drink all of it. He was referring to this third cup after the meal, because it says, after the meal, he took the cup. And that cup is called the cup of redemption, because it represents the fact that God says, I will redeem you. The cup of redemption, that's the cup Yeshua offered to his disciples. But there was a fourth cup. And as you read through the Gospels, there's a cup where Yeshua says, I will not drink again of this cup of the vine until I drink it with you in my Father's house. And that is the fourth cup. Because this is about taking his people out, taking them to himself. And this is the cup we will drink with him at the marriage feast of the Lamb. You know, in a Jewish wedding ceremony, I love performing the the ancient first century Jewish wedding ceremony. And there are two cups of wine that... Are drunk. Um, The groom will drink from the cup first and offer it to the bride. And then near the end of the service, in fact, at the very end of the service, there's another cup that is drunk. And the moment they both drink from this cup, they are married. Before the bride drinks from it, she's still single. But the moment she takes some of that that wine into her mouth, she is now a married woman. Those two cups at the marriage ceremony are these third and fourth cups and that fourth cup always represents the sealing of the marriage covenant and the two becoming one and celebrating the marriage feast but I'm getting off into other things uh, what one of the things that the rabbis discuss is this they ask, shouldn't there be a fifth cup because you see these four I will statements I will bring you out, I will deliver you, I will redeem you, I will take you to be my people. But then there's a fifth statement. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for possession. I am yad And the question is, why don't we drink a fifth cup at the Seder? Some rabbis believe we should. And, of course, this has been an ongoing discussion for a couple thousand years at least. My opinion is this. The reason we drink four is because that generation did not make it into the land. If you recall, this generation that's taken out of Egypt, because of their fear, their faithlessness, their cowardice, they did not make it into the land. And so this cup did not really apply to that generation. But that's just my own opinion. What's your opinion? Think about it. And then we come to verse 9. And make sure your translation reflects the Hebrew in this. It says in verse 9, So Moses spoke accordingly to the children of Israel, but they did not hear Moses. They, they uh, um, They just couldn't listen to him. Couldn't hear what he had to say. Because of what? Shortness of spirit. Shortness of spirit. Yours may say dis, they were disheartened or shortness of breath, but the word that is used there is the word ruach. They just didn't have enough ruach, shortness of spirit, and the crushing labor. The, the avodah, the, the labor that was kasha, that was, that was crushing them. Now do you see something odd about that phrase? Doesn't it seem backwards? Doesn't it seem like it should say because of the hard labor? And because of the hard labor, they had shortness of spirit, shortness of breath. You get short of breath after you work. You don't get shortness of breath first and then have hard labor. And the word ruach, it can mean, it also means wind, but it can mean breath. But I like to always translate it as it's, as it uh, is normally translated, ruach, as spirit. But why does shortness of spirit precede hard labor? I think God's teaching us a lesson here. Because I find in my own life, if I am not refreshing myself spiritually, I find my work very difficult to do. And I can't hear what God is saying. If we want to be spiritually attuned to God's voice, we must be refreshed in our spirit first. If we're in our spirit, our labor is going to be easy. Our yoke is going to be easy. Our burden is going to be light. But when you are not in tune with God's spirit, if you're not being refreshed by his spirit daily, if you're not spending time breathing in his inspired word, your shortness of breath is going to cause everything to be difficult. And another thing I find is that when I'm not refreshed by a spirit, by focusing on his word, by spending time in his word and, and breathing it in and being energized by it, I find I don't know what God's work really is. And I find myself wasting my energies on things God did not give me to do and then missing, the light burden, the easy work he has given me to do. So you need to take inventory in your own life, as do I, daily. Are you breathing in his his inspired, um, his God-breathed word? For all scripture is given by the breathing of God, the inspiration, the out-breathing of God. And if we're to continue to breathe in the air of heaven, Breathe in the breath from God's mouth to our nostrils. We must spend time in his inspired word. We don't live by bread alone, but by everything that proceeds from the mouth of God. So make sure you're not short of spirit. And then you're going to find your labor isn't that difficult. And you'll know which labor to do. Now here's a fascinating thing that no translation gets right though the rabbis talk about it extensively, and that's in verse 27. In chapter 6, we see God giving a bit of a family tree. He gives uh, the name of Reuben, the firstborn of Jacob, and some of his children. Then he goes on to Simeon, the secondborn, and then to Levi, and that's as far as he goes. Because he wants to get down to Moses and Aaron, who were descendants of Levi. And in verse 27, it says this. They were the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, Moses and and, and, um, Aaron, king of Egypt, to send the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. He was Moses and Aaron. So it was they who spoke to Pharaoh. He was Moses and Aaron. It doesn't say they were Moses and Aaron. It doesn't say these are Moses and Aaron. It says who, which is the Hebrew word for he. He, singular, masculine. He was Moses and Aaron. Now every jot and tittle of the Torah is placed there by God. And so there's not a grammatical mistake here. This is put here by God's design. What is he trying to teach us? And I so wish that translators are not try to correct what they perceive as a grammatical error. Um, There are no errors of the Torah, but you need to correct it in your translation. And again, what is God trying to teach us? As you've been through the story of Moses and Aaron and the, the plagues and the showdown with Pharaoh in Egypt, you may have asked yourself the questions, why is it that the rod of Moses is sometimes called the rod of Aaron. Now, why is it that God tells Moses to strike something, then you see Aaron taking the rod and striking it, but then it's called the rod of Moses? What's going on here? What's going on here is that Moses and Aaron have become so united in their mission that God refers to them as he. It didn't really make any difference whether the, the staff was in Moses' hand or in Aaron's hand. If the, the soil was struck by Moses or struck by Aaron. It doesn't make much difference whether it's Moses that speaks or Aaron that speaks. Because God treats them as a unit of utter oneness. And God works through them. Or should I say, he works through him. And so when you come to this confusion as to who's doing what, remember that God has introduced what appears confusing on purpose to try to help us understand it's he, it's not they anymore. If we really want to do God's work of taking the gospel into the world and representing him to the world, we cannot do it if we are a disunited people. And the enemy does everything he can to disunite us in spirit and in heart and in purpose. And over and over we are, we are, are told that we should be one, that we should serve in unity. There should be no, no barriers and no divisions among us. And when there's division, humble yourself. Humble yourself. And do whatever you can do to be a peacemaker because the peacemakers, Messiah tells us, will be called the sons of God. He wants us to be peacemakers. Make peace. Make peace. And I have so many stories of of faith communities that at one time appeared to be unified, and then they split up over some stupid, nonsensical, moronic, trivial thing. Somebody didn't like the music, or somebody didn't like the preacher, or somebody got their their nose out of joint because of something somebody said. Um, I... (laughs) Anyways, I'm tempted to tell you stories and share anecdotes. I'm not. But all through my life, from the time I was a kid, I have seen division caused by stuff that doesn't matter. And then we wonder why we're not turning the world upside down the way the first century community did. And in these days of shaking, that we are going through in the world where God is shaking the world so much. Today happens to be the very last day of 2021. It's December 31st. And a lot of people in the news I hear, are th- saying, I can't wait for 2022 because I know it's gonna be better than 2021. No, it isn't. There's gonna be more shaking. We'll wish we were back in 2021. But there's no fear. There's no worry. There should be no anxiety because the shaking comes from God. And if God is doing it, then it's a good thing and it has a positive purpose. And I think one of the things that it's going to accomplish in the redeemed community is to reveal who is on the rock and who is not. And when the shaking comes, trivial differences don't make any difference and we will begin to come together and unity. All of a sudden denominational barriers aren't barriers anymore. And I've shared this before with you, but I can't remember how long it's been. But it's a uh, a dream that I did not have, but it was a Catholic friend actually who had this dream and he shared it with a large group of us. This was back when uh, I was in my early 20s. We won't talk about how many decades ago that was, but he said he had this dream, and he saw these uh, pins, like chain-link fence, and these pins, these were all separated out, and each one was filled with ducks. And there was a pin of ducks here, and a pin of ducks here, and another pin, and there were just all these pins with ducks in them. They were all separated from each other. It says, and then it began to rain and rain, and rain, and thunder, and pour down, and pretty soon everything is flooded. And as things are flooded, the ducks begin to rise. And when the flood reaches its peak, the ducks are all above the fences, and now they're all mingling with each other. I think we live in the days when the storm is here. And suddenly, we're going to find ourselves not being divided by stupid stuff, but be united by real stuff, by truth, by the things that really matter. So, um, anyways, just uh, if things really go belly up in 2022, remember you heard it first here. Now, in chapter 7, Uh, We'll start with the first verse. Adonai said to Moses, See, I have made you... This is very interesting to me. He's talking to Moses. See, I have made you an Elohim to Pharaoh. And Aaron, your brother, shall be your Navi, your prophet. Now, was Moses an Elohim? Was Aaron actually a prophet? No. But God is saying, in Pharaoh's eyes, you are. Pharaoh is used to seeing animals as gods, he's used to perceiving himself as a god. So in his eyes, I'm going to allow you to be perceived as a god, Moses. And as Aaron does most of the speaking, you tell Aaron what to say, and Aaron does the speaking, he'll be perceived as your prophet. We're going to let Pharaoh look at things that way for a while. Later, I think Pharaoh comes to his senses and begins to realize what's really going on. But uh, God tells, tells Moses, See, I've made you an Elohim to Pharaoh, and Aaron, your brother, shall be your prophet. You shall speak everything that I shall command, command you, and Aaron, your brother, shall speak to Pharaoh, that he should send the children of Israel from his land. But I shall harden Pharaoh's heart. Now, what's interesting God doesn't actually harden Pharaoh's heart until some time later. And um, we see at first that Pharaoh hardens his own heart several times. And then finally later on, I think it's in chapter 9 or 10, uh, God hardens his heart. We'll see the verse in a moment. So the question is, did Pharaoh lose his free will? Did God just take his free will away from him? I'm going to harden your heart and make you do what I want you to do. Well, I had always kind of thought that this is what God had done. But uh, Dennis Prager has a brilliant insight into this in his commentary on Exodus. Prager says, Strengthening Pharaoh's heart is precisely what gave Pharaoh free will. Let me read this passage to you from Dennis Prager's excellent commentary on the book of Exodus. This is what Prager says. Had God not strengthened Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh would have released the Israelites after one or at most two or three plagues. But such a release would have no more been an act of free will than it is free will when a man gives a confession while being tortured or signs a contract with a gun pointed at his head. As in the famous words from the Godfather, I'll make him an offer he can't refuse. God's strengthening allowed Pharaoh to do what in his heart he really wanted to do, refuse to give up his slaves. You understand what Prager is saying here? If someone puts a contract in front of you and says, sign the contract, you have free will. You can sign it or you can not sign it. Perfectly free will. But if he holds a gun to your head and says, sign it or I'll pull the trigger, you're going to sign the contract. You don't want to, but now your free will is kind of taken out of your hands. But if you can harden your heart to where there's no fear of the guy holding the gun, if you can strengthen your heart to the point where you have no fear whatsoever of what this guy can do to you, guess what? Your free will is reinstated. You can sign it or you can not sign it. This is what God did to Pharaoh. Pharaoh. He strengthened his heart, hardened his heart to the point where even with all these horrible things happening in Egypt and all these plagues and all this chaos, Pharaoh still did what he wanted to do. I think it's a a brilliant insight that Prager offers us and and we'll find that it really makes sense as we go on. Now, over in chapter 9, verse 12, it says, But Adonai hardened the heart of Pharaoh, So, here in chapter 7, verse 3, God says, I will harden his heart. Well, we don't see God really hardening his heart until chapter 9. In between, we see Pharaoh hardening his own heart. Now, here's another principle. Set aside what the Prager quote for a moment, and let's talk about this. In fact, let me... Let me share something with you that it's easy to miss, so listen very carefully to this. As we read these chapters in Exodus about God's great redemption, and we see ourselves as the ones being redeemed, we read in the story these slaves as being a picture of us, and they are. Because all of us were enslaved to sin at one time or another, and some of you listening to this may still be enslaved to sin. But God brings redemption through his Messiah, and as we will see here in next week's Torah portion, God will begin to discuss the Passover lamb, this lamb that would be slain on the day of Passover, whose blood would be put on the, the doorpost and lintel of the house, and Its body will be eaten, and through the blood and the body of the Lamb, the people become free, and the people stay alive. They're passed from from slavery to freedom and from death to life. And of course, we read this as our story, because our Messiah, the Lamb of God, was crucified on Passover. We weren't in slavery to a Pharaoh. We were in slavery to sin. And we look at the the body and blood of the Lamb, and we look at the body and blood of Messiah, what does it accomplish for us? This is how we should read the story. But there's another way to read the story as well, and we cannot afford to miss it, and it is this. Pharaoh is also a picture of you and me. Don't fail to read yourself into Pharaoh's story. Because just as Pharaoh could harden his own heart to resist God, to refuse God's will and insist on doing his own, we are very capable of doing the same. When we get up to the seventh plague, when it's over, God says, I know that you still do not fear me. Even after all these things you've been through, you still don't fear me. And I know of believers, and I know of times in my own life, I went through hell and continued to harden my heart because I did not want to do what God wanted me to do. And I refused to do the things he did want me to do. In fact, not only can we be like Pharaoh in that we harden our hearts, we can be like Pharaoh in our reliance on idols. Pharaoh had all kinds of faith in the gods of Egypt. You and I tend to do the same. They may not be the gods of Egypt, but they're the gods in your own life. You may have faith in your resources. You may have faith in your health. You may have faith in your intellect. You may have faith in your finances. You may have faith in the government. Now, that's stupid. You may have faith in all kinds of things. But you know what God calls idols? He calls them targets. Because every plague, and if you've studied with us before, you know that each plague was specifically targeting a god of Egypt. The Nile River is considered a god. God turns it into blood. And then frogs come up. And I think it's uh, Imhotep or Hotep or one of them is the name of the frog god. God says, you like frogs? Here's frogs. But eventually they're squashing them underfoot and then they heap them in piles and burn them. The greatest god in Egyptian, uh, the pantheon, was Ra, the sun god. And in the ninth plague, God turns the sun off, basically. He, he makes it so dark they could feel it for three days. So everything they worshipped as a god, even though there's nothing wrong with the Nile River or with frogs or with the sun, for Pete's sake, but when they worship it as a god, God will take away their taste for it. He'll break their reliance on that and to show that though the sun is wonderful as a light source for this world and Frogs are great for eating flies, but it's, it's like it makes a horrible God. These make horrible gods. And there's nothing wrong with good health. I pray that we all have good health. There's nothing wrong with finances or a house or intellect. All these are gifts from God. But the moment you be rely on them instead of him, you have marked that thing for some kind of destruction. God did not destroy any of the things that were attacked, or, or these gods, he did not destroy the Nile River. He turned it to blood for a while, but the Nile River flows today. Though he turned the sun dark for three days, the sun shines today. Though um, he sent locusts and then they died, there are still locusts in the world today. All these things still exist. But when we look at these things as gods, our relationship with them is going to be changed and is going to turn sour and turn rotten. It's like manna that was kept overnight and it breeds worms and it stinks. I can say in my own life that the pain in my life has come from disobedience to God. But every bit of frustration I've ever experienced in my life has always come from me hardening my heart against God. Pain has come through the idols God has had to destroy, but frustration, the frustration you experience and I experience every bit of it, always comes from us insisting on doing things our way and refusing to do things God's way. So you have to stop the tape right now and take some inventory, what are the frustrations you have? I know there's some very, very frustrated believers right now. Then you've hardened your heart. You need to soften it. You need to fear God. So, one of the things that I want us to see in this is that with all these plagues... With all this chaos, with all this disaster, it's all organized. It all rhymes. It's all ordained, and it has a divine design to it. It's absolutely incredible. Now, if you were in Egypt at the time, here's the Nile being turned to blood. You can't drink it. You're thirsty. All the fish are dying. Can you imagine the stench? And then there are all these frogs coming up. And then after, you've got sand turned into lice and it's just biting you all over and then you've got the next thing and the next and it's just chaos. If you were in Egypt during these 9, 10, 12 months that these things are happening, you'd think the whole world is just coming apart at the seams. And in the shaking we're experiencing these days and in the days to come, you may think the world's coming apart at the seams. But I promise you. Everything is by design. God has his hand on the controls. He is intimately involved in every detail. And when you look at the plagues, and we're going to look at the nine plagues, I know there's a tenth one, the death of the firstborn, but that's in the category all its own. We'll look at that one next week. But the nine plagues leading up to that all have, a very definite design to them. They are in three groups of three. Plagues 1 through 3, plagues 4 through 6, plagues 7 through 9. And each set of plagues is introduced and has a purpose. In Exodus 7.17, God gives the purpose for the first three plagues. It says, Thus says Adonai, by this you shall know that I am Adonai. Now, why is this so important? God is speaking here to Pharaoh. This this is the message to Pharaoh. Because back in chapter 5, verse 2, Pharaoh said, Who is Adonai, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I don't know, Adonai. Moreover, I will not let Israel go. So the first three plagues are introduced, and God says, okay, You're going to let them go. You've asked who I am. You claim not to know me. Let me introduce myself. So the first three plagues take place. And then God introduces plagues four through six. Now, uh, if you'll notice here, Exodus 8.18, then in brackets I have 22. In the Hebrew Bible, this is verse 18. But in an English Bible, it's verse 22. This is one of those chapters where the verse numbers are off. So if you're reading in an English Bible, verse 22, if you're looking at the complete Jewish Bible, it'll be verse 18. But he introduces plagues 4 through 6 this way. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell, so that no swarm shall be there. That you may know. Here's the reason. That you may know that I am Adonai in the midst of the land. Translations might have in the midst of the earth. And that's true. But I think the context here uh, is the land of Egypt, because everything is focused here, the land of Egypt. The word arets, that is translated land, can mean either earth or land. And I translate it land. And we could put this in other words. It's almost as if God is saying, I have invaded Egypt. I've invaded. I am an invading army. Choose a side. You can choose to stand against me or you can surrender and join me. You know, if you think about it, when Yeshua came and when when he died on that cross and then rose from the dead, the invasion started. God invaded the world. And he says, okay, you have a choice. You can surrender to me. You can put on my jersey. And you can fight spiritual warfare on my team. Or you can stand against me. But choose a side. And then plagues 7 through 9 are introduced in chapter 9, verses 14 to 16. Now, this is right before Plague 7. Plague 7 is unique. Among all 10 plagues, it's utterly unique. It says, for this time, I will send all my plagues on you. I I think I meant to put yourself, but uh, somehow I have you yourself. And on your servants and your people, so that you may know. Now, each time, it's to teach something. And this time, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. There's none like me in all the land. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the land, in all the earth. It's almost as if God is saying, Don't even compare me, Pharaoh, to your so-called gods. Don't even compare me. Up to this point, you thought I was just another God among all the gods. I was the God of the Jews, and now there's competition between the gods of Egypt and the God of the Jews. But he's saying, there's none like me. Don't even compare me to these measly gods that you have and that you worship. So you understand that each of the plagues, each set of plagues, had a particular purpose of something God wanted to teach. Now, Pharaoh didn't seem to learn the lesson that God wanted to teach through these plagues because he had hardened his heart. And then, since he decided to harden his heart, God says, let me help. But boy, Pharaoh's subjects were paying attention. And when there's a warning given that uh, this, uh, th- this destruction is coming, it says Pharaoh's servants, the Egyptians who, who are listening, They protected their cattle so they wouldn't be hurt. The Egyptians are listening. The slaves from all over the world who are slaves in Egypt, they're paying attention. Do you ever stop to think, why didn't God just jump straight to plague number 10? Why didn't he just skip the first nine? Because it was the death of the firstborn that finally broke Pharaoh's will, and he didn't just let the Israelites go, He drove them out. So why didn't God just start with plague 10? Why go through all these first nine? And the reason is he's he vav Vavhe, which is God's name of mercy. And he was being very merciful. He didn't want, did not want to destroy the firstborn of Egypt. And so through these first 9 plagues he's letting the people of Egypt, the people who did not know God, begin to learn who Yahweh was. And by the time the 10th plague comes, we know that many, many, many of these gentiles, Egyptians and slaves from around the world, they put that blood on their doors and their lintels as well. And when Israel went out, they went out as a great mixed multitude maybe as many as two million people. We don't know. If God had not done these first nine plagues, then no one would have listened to his warning about plague number 10. It's fascinating that God's name, Yadhe heh when you see that name, it, it's accentuating his attribute of mercy. When you see Elohim, it's accentuating his trait of strict justice. <clears throat> and throughout the story of the plagues, it's yad heh it's used. It's his name of mercy. So even these plagues and even the shaking that's coming in our days are an act of mercy from God to prepare us for Messiah's return, to prepare us for the day of judgment. So we have a choice of developing a healthy fear of God and a love for him and to begin to put our lives in order in preparation for his kingdom to be established. Another thing that's interesting is we see the plagues in groups of three, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. But the first plague in each of those three groups was announced ahead of time at the river. Moses went down to the river, there's Pharaoh, and Moses would announce the plague. For the second plague of each set, plagues two, five, and eight, Moses goes to Pharaoh's palace to announce the plague. And then for the third plague in each set, plagues three, six, and nine, there's no announcement at all. It just happens, no warning. So when we take the plagues and put them on a chart, we see that Plagues 1, 2, and 3 are introduced, and God tells us why. It's so that you may know that I am Adonai. Pharaoh, you asked who I am. Let me introduce myself. I am Yadhe Vav. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He introduces 4, 5, and 6. That you may know that I am Adonai in the land I have invaded. Pick aside. He then introduces 7, 8, and 9. So you can know that I am Adonai. There is no God like me. There are no other gods. I am the one and only. But then, when you look at the plagues this way, plagues 1, 4, and 7 are all announced at the river. Moses announces them to Pharaoh. Plagues 2, 5, and 8 are announced in the palace. 3, 6, and 9, no announcement at all. So again, though this year of plagues would have seemed so utterly chaotic, there's perfect harmony and balance and design throughout. And only through hindsight hindsight can we look back and see God's brilliance and his design in this. In plague number seven, God says, this time I send all my plagues against you. Whenever you have a list of things, in this case, nine or ten plagues, actually, whenever you have a list of things, number seven often is the key to the whole list. And in plague number seven, God says, this time I'll send all my plagues against you. What does that mean, I'll send all my plagues? he had already sent six, and there are a few more to go. Why does he say, this time I send all of them? Well, what was plague seven? Plague seven was hail, which is ice. Frozen water, which comes out of the sky, and when it comes to the ground, it it had fire in it, It turned to fire, and burned up the ground, burned up the, the crops. Fire and water. Well, what was the very first plague? First plague was turning the Nile, the water, into blood. And what was the ninth plague? The ninth plague had to do with the sun, making the sun dark. Again, we see water and fire. God says, I control them all. I control the river, and I control the sun. And here we see water, in this case ice, turn into fire. I'm sending all my plagues to you in this one. But there are many unique features of plague number seven. In plague number seven is the only place in the whole story where we see the name Adonai Elohim, God's two names put together. His name of mercy in his name of strict justice put together. We see fire and water together. We see the phrase Haaretz, the land, used seven times. It's the only plague where Pharaoh repents. He repents, says, I'm a sinner, I've done wrong. But as soon as the plague was over, his heart was hardened again. And uh, his, his repentance didn't stick. I know there are times in my life and probably yours where your repentance didn't stick. You need a few more plagues to get you right. So anyways, again, as you study these plagues, uh, they are so harmonious that you look beyond the chaos to look at the design to see God's hand all over them. Now, most translations just don't do a very good job in translating the two Hebrew words that are used for hardening of the heart and strengthening of the heart. And um, unfortunately, even some of the better translations still don't make a distinction between these. So let me give you an example of where both words are used. In Exodus 8:11, or it'll be verse 15 in an English Bible, says, But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite. He hardened, the word here is chabad. Uh, the word chavad means glory or means weight. And he hardened his heart, chabad, and would not listen to them, as Adonai said. But you go down four f- verses further, it says, but Pharaoh's heart was strengthened. Chazek, chazak, I'm sorry, chazak is the word. And he would not listen to them, as Adonai had said. So take a moment and look in your Bible. If you use an English Bibles, verse 15 and verse 19. And see if it translates these differently. I'm willing to bet that it uses the same word both times, that he hardened his heart. But there's a difference between the words. If they meant the same thing, God would have used the same Hebrew word. They have distinct meanings to them. Another way we could translate this word strengthen is he made his heart stubborn. But as the rabbis look at how these two words are used, this is their conclusion, and I agree with it. It says, to harden means to not do what God commands. To strengthen or make your heart stubborn is to do what God has forbidden. So when Pharaoh would harden his heart, he was determining not to do what God commanded him, let my people go. But when he strengthened his heart, it was to do what God had forbidden, to continue to resist him, to to go back on his word, to repent and say, I'll let them go, and and to lie is something God forbids. But Pharaoh lied. Pharaoh would go back to his word and his promises. He would not keep his word to the people. And as difficult as it may be to hear, believers, again, are very capable of hardening their hearts and making their hearts stubborn. And I'm asking you again, the frustrations in your life, the frustrations in your life come from one or both of these things. And I ask you, just, you know, in in the name of God and by his mercies, to repent of this. A frustrating life is a horrible way to live. Our lives are meant to be frustrating. Challenging, sure. No challenges, there's no victories. But frustrating? That is not part of God's plan for our lives. So soften your heart. Break that stubborn streak. And begin to hear what God has to say and to do it. And you'll find joy once again reestablishing itself in your life and making a, a huge impact in the lives of others. Now, after the third plague, that's where the, uh, the dust was turned to lice in chapter 8, verse 15 or 19 in the English Bible. The magicians weren't able to, to uh, copy that plague. Sure, their staffs could turn into snakes, and yeah, they could turn water into blood, and yeah, they could call up frogs. But when it came to the lice thing... They they couldn't do that. And that's when they went to Pharaoh and they said, this is the finger of Elohim. This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was stubborn and he would not listen to them as Adonai had said. Now that phrase, the finger of God, is found only twice in the Bible. It's found once here in Exodus 8.15. The other place it's found is in Luke 11, verses 19 and 20. Yeshua had cast out some demons, and he was accused of casting them out by the power of Beelzebub, uh, one of the princes of the demons. And Yeshua said, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, but whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you they would not have missed this reference about the finger of God. They would have gone directly back to the story of Exodus and the message of the magicians to Pharaoh. And they would have felt either insulted by this or convicted by what Yeshua said. Because basically what Yeshua is saying is this. What you've just seen done, the casting out of these demons, that's the finger of God. But you want to give the credit to Beelzebub instead of to me. And if Pharaoh's magicians could recognize the finger of God when it moved, what's your problem? (coughs) Excuse me. He's basically saying Pharaoh's magicians were more astute spiritually than you are. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the leaders of the Jewish nation at that time. Well, let's move right on to our discussion questions. How do we pronounce God's name? Likewise, how do we mispronounce his name? Number two, when you see how the chaos of the plagues is organized, how do you now view chaos in your own life? And I'm hoping you'll begin to realize that even the chaos in your own life, that God may be stirring up, there's a pattern, there's a design to it. Three, discuss the seventh plague. Why does God say, this time I shall send all my plagues? You may want to go back to the last teaching I did on this Torah portion, and I, I, I chart them out. There are many unique things about plague number seven. How does the seventh plague parallel the first and the ninth? And I gave you a hint of that already. And then question number five, God's name of mercy, Yudhe heh is used throughout the account of the plagues. Why didn't he use his name Elohim instead? So, I hope you'll uh, have a a great time chewing on those questions and um, and generating some, some great insights and personal applications. So, let's pray. Our Father and King, thank you. Thank you so much for your Torah, which is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Thank you for the the revelation of yourself, the revelation of your name. For Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob knew how to spell your name. They knew how to pronounce your name. But it wasn't until this generation that they understand the redemptive power of the name, that you would invade the earth, that you would take very specific actions to save and redeem your people. That you would reveal yourself in the world on such a um, to such a degree that the most powerful nation on earth at the time, Egypt and its king Pharaoh, would be would be pushed back on their heels as you would miraculously bring your people and a great mixed multitude out of slavery and out of death and bring them to your holy mountain. Lord, this aspect of your name is something that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob never do. Lord, for many of us, we may not know your redemptive power yet ourselves, though we claim to be believers and disciples. So Lord, reveal your essence to us and make us the people you want us to be so that we can pronounce your name Through our lives, we ask this in Yeshua's name.